I'll just say this about our vacation for now. Um, some of you have heard rumors. Uh, if it's five nights before you sleep in the place you actually intended to sleep in, and if the first night you camp is in the parking lot of a hospital slash church slash social services compound on the Navajo reservation, something has gone horribly off the rails. All right, that's just a little pro tip for you. Uh, but 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 we had we had fun uh, for the most part, and and we're glad to be back. So what are we going to do today? We're going to look at Isaiah chapter fifty-eight. So I just want to start off reading this. Uh, you see it there in your bulletin, so if you just want to follow along with me. This is God's word. Shout it aloud! Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to see the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see them, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the need of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and the feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. We pray for us. Father, um, you have given us your word. Uh, I pray that you would open it to us now and help us to understand it. And help us um, not just to be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So today what we're going to do um, is I want to look at one of the more common objections to the Christian faith. And it's the objection that says, I just can't believe that Christianity is true because of the way I see Christians behaving. Now, you may hear it stated in different ways. You may hear it stated, I can't believe in Christianity because the church is responsible for so much oppression and injustice. Or you may hear it stated, I can't believe in Christianity because the church is so filled with hypocrites. Uh, But when you boil it all down, what's happening is people are looking at the church as a whole, are looking at the behavior of individual Christians, and they're saying, is if this is a type of life, if this is the type of behavior that Christianity produces, then I don't really want anything to do with that. So how do we answer this objection? I think we start by acknowledging that there's some legitimacy to it. Now, uh, while I would argue that the world is a much better place because of Christianity, and you know, insert the obligatory, go watch the book of Eli, where you see what the world is like if there, if there is no Bible, uh, where you can really see this demonstrated. The world is a much better place with Christianity than it is without it. But uh, we have to admit that great injustices have been committed in the name of Christ. And that individual Christians have failed miserably uh, in their behavior at times. I mean, you only, in our own country, you only have to look at the way uh, that white people treated African Americans for many years to see that this uh, objection to Christianity is not illegitimate. Uh, the, the image that, that haunts me still is the image of uh, the KKK gathered in the front of a church like this with a banner behind them that says, Jesus saves. And you're just like, what in the world? Like, where, where, where's the, the disconnect there? So, um, yes, we as the church have failed badly at times. Yes, we as, as individual Christians fail badly at times. And, and I think if, if we're honest, we all have to admit that none of us uh, are nearly as Christ-like in our own behavior as we would like to be. Uh, when we were putting the bulletin together this week, one of the hymns we're going to sing is, All I Have is Christ. And it was mistyped the first time as, as All I Have is Christians. And a, a couple of people that, that I pointed this out to, their, their reaction was basically the same thing. They said, thank goodness that's not true. Right? Thank, thank goodness that that's not what we're singing. That, that we do have Jesus. So let's admit, kind of, kind of on the front end, as we try to answer this objection, that it does have some, some teeth to it. So then, uh, how do we try to answer it? I want to do four things. Uh, number one, and we'll spend the, the bulk of our time on this, I want us to look at what the Bible says about human behavior in general and Christian behavior in particular. Then second, I want us to look at how God feels about injustice and hypocrisy. And then thirdly, what do we do with the injustices committed by Christians? And fourthly, How can I, as a believer, make Christianity more attractive and not less attractive? All right. So first of all, what does the Bible say about human behavior in general and Christian behavior in particular? Uh, Again, the objection says, I can't believe in Christianity because it's led to so much oppression and injustice. Uh, The atheist Richard Dawkins has even gone so far to say, as, as to say, religion itself just inherently leads to violence. 
Like that's just the nature of religion, that it leads to violent behavior. Uh, Christopher Hitchens has said that religion poisons everything, that that's just what it does. So does religion necessarily produce violence? Well, no, and that was kind of easy because there's never been an Amish person on a terrorist watch list, right? Like we're not concerned about the Amish and they're some of the most religious people that we know. And so, no, religion doesn't necessarily produce violence. Yes, it, it can produce violence when, when taken in the wrong way. But the reality is, is, if you look back, for instance, at the 20th century, most of the violence in the 20th century was not driven by religion. It was driven by a very secular worldview. Uh, Alistair McGrath wrote this. He said, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes in human history, that the greatest intolerances and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion created intolerance and violence. You hear what he said? The greatest intolerance and violence were, were, were done by those who, the whole time they were doing it, were saying that religion creates tolerance and in violence. In Cambodia, millions of people were killed in the name uh, of socialism. Between 1918 and 1941, uh, McGrath writes that the Soviet authorities systematically destroyed the church and the priests and, and tried to wipe away any evidence uh, of religion. Joseph Stalin, millions were killed under his atheistic communism. And so it can't simply be, the answer can't be as simple as Religion leads to violence when it's obvious that non-religion, when atheism leads to violence as well. And so what's the answer then? A newspaper once asked its readers this question, well, what's wrong with the world? Uh, G.K. Chesterton replied very shortly, Dear sirs, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. See, the, the Bible places the cause of the violence and the wickedness in, in, in the world very squarely inside the human heart. Uh, Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so, what's the problem with the world? Well, I am. I'm, I'm the problem with the world. I, you hear people say from time to time, well, I just believe people are basically good. And when I hear that, I kind of I want to say, what people? Um, com- compared to who? Charles Manson, maybe. But, but let's be honest. You and I are carrying around in ourselves the, the seeds of, of murder and the seeds of adultery. And we demonstrate hate and we carry around pride. Uh, there, are, there are smaller sins that are lurking in us every day that given the right set of circumstances can explode into much bigger sins. Uh, and, and if your car breaks down four times on vacation, I guarantee you will expose those sins. All right? 
It just takes it just takes the right set of circumstances, and you see these things start to come out. Uh, one of the things people loved about the television show Breaking Bad was was watching Walt, the mild mannered chemistry teacher, transformed into like the Godfather esque criminal mastermind. They're like, wow, look at how he like he broke bad, how he changed. But the reality was, was that was that was in him all the time. That didn't just happen out of nowhere. He was already a proud and a bitter and an insecure man. And it was just the right set of circumstances, like, you know, like like putting the match to the gasoline and it exploded. The, the, the right set of circumstances can cause those sins that we've kind of suppressed and covered up so well can cause them to explode into the light. And so acts of injustice and acts of oppression committed by both Christians and non-Christians, while they may be fueled by differing belief systems or differing set of circumstances, ultimately have their root in the, in the sinful soil of the human heart. And that's something we all have in common. Now, somebody might object at this point and were like, well, what about good works? I, I know people who aren't Christians who live lives that are much better. They seem much more moral than some of the, the Christians that I know. All right, so again, we kind of got to work through this, and it's going to have several parts. What does the Bible say about who we are as people? Uh, number one, again, the Bible says that all of us, are sinful and broken and that we're we're prone to acts of disobedience that flow from a heart that doesn't want to have God or anybody else ruling over us and the Bible teaches that we are that we're broken in every part our heart our mind our soul our emotions however you want to label all that that we are broken in every part every part of us is infected by sin but we're not as bad as we could be we're not as bad as we could be. Think about a, a perfectly pure glass of water. And think about a glass of water where you put one drop of poison in and it distills through the whole glass. And then think about a pure glass of poison. All right? What we are like is much more like this middle picture, that this poison has distilled through our whole being. When, when, when our youth group's been talking about total depravity, that doesn't mean we're as bad as we possibly could be, every one of us. It means that all of us is infected. All of our being is infected by sin in each and every part. And so that's what we're like. Um, and so while we aren't capable of doing deeds that are good in the sense that we're doing them in order to please and to glorify God by nature, we are able to do externally good works. And, and all I mean by that is you don't have to be a Christian to help little old ladies across the street. Like, everybody does that, right? Oh, pretty much everybody does that. Um, and so we're capable of doing those sorts of things. In addition, God, by His common grace, actually restrains sin so that things are not as bad as they could be. Uh, he gives us a conscience. He, he has a, a law that is written on our hearts uh, that restrains sin. Romans 2.14, when Gentiles who do not have the, the written law do by nature what the law requires. And so people who aren't Christians do good things, do externally good things. They keep promises. They, they contribute to society. They help the homeless. 
they, they do all sorts of wonderful things. So that's, that's number one. Number two, the Bible teaches that Christians aren't saved by being good. They're not saved by works. They're not brought into a right relationship with God by what they do, but they're saved through faith in Jesus. And so Christians aren't saved because we're somehow better than non-Christians. But we're brought into a relationship with God by acknowledging our own sin and trusting in Christ as our Savior. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. I, um, several years ago, I had the privilege of doing a funeral. It's for somebody I didn't know very well. But it's somebody that had lived at Summit Hills for a few years. And they were, they were 89 years old. And they, they, they passed away. And their son was telling me some of the stories of this man's life. And he said the year before his dad died, he was living on the third floor of this facility. And the fire alarm sounded. And his dad usually took the elevator, but because of the fire alarm, he couldn't take the elevator, so he goes to take the stairs. And when he gets to the stairwell, there's an elderly lady there in a wheelchair with an oxygen tank. She's like, I can't, I can't get down the stairs. Can you help me? And so this man, Mr. Canada, who I guess was, I think he's like 88 at the time, says, I'll, I'll get you down. And so he picks the lady up out of the wheelchair, and he carries her down three flights of stairs uh, to safety, right? That's, that's pretty amazing, right? Like we all hope we could do something like that. Now, most people hear that story and say, well, that's, that's the kind of people that, that go to heaven. I mean, that, that's how you get to heaven, by doing good works like that, by carrying people down the stairs when they need to be carried down the stairs. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that we go to heaven when we realize that we're the little old lady sitting in the wheelchair with the oxygen tank and we can't make it down the stairs. And then Jesus comes along and we throw ourselves in his arms and he carries us down the stairs. He carries us to salvation. He carries us to safety. That's the gospel. That's the message the church proclaims. That's salvation by grace, not by works. So, so what are we saying here? We're saying all people are broken and sinful. Everybody, Christians and non-Christians. Uh, because of God's common grace, we're, we're not as bad as we could be. But we're all Christians and non-Christians capable of doing what, what we'll just call externally good works. Uh, number three, Christians are saved then not because they're better than non-Christians, but because they realize that even their best works are tainted with sin and they trust Jesus to save them. Which leads us to number four. When someone comes to know Jesus then, God does give them a new heart. And he begins the process of making them more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And they begin to change. But there are still remnants of what the Bible calls the flesh or the sinful nature that we carry around with us until we die. So we're all works in progress. And so we're going to we're going to mess up and we're not suddenly going to live perfect lives once we become Christians. And so we'll fail sometimes in, in pretty big ways. No matter how long has somebody has been a Christian, they're still a sinner. And so they're still going to sin and they're still going to fail and they're still going to have blind spots even. So we're all broken and sinful because of, of God's common grace restraining sin. 
Christians and non-Christians can do these, these externally good works. Christians are saved not because they're better, but because they're trusting in Jesus to save them. Four Christians are forgiven, and yet we still sin because we have remnants of the sinful nature. Sanctification is a process. Now put all that together. All right, and, and think about two people. Neither of them are Christians. Uh, one of them grew up in a home with loving parents who instilled a basic sense of right and wrong, who taught them how to be responsible, who taught them how to work hard, who made sure they had a good education. The second person grew up in a broken home, had abusive parents who struggled with all kinds of addictions. They had a rough life. And now in their own life, they're battling with addiction. And the second person hears the gospel and becomes a Christian. And some things start to change overnight, but everything doesn't change at once. And they still struggle with some of the things that have been patterns in their lives for a long time, but they're, they're moving in the right direction. Now, just looking at them from the outside, put the second person up against the first person, it shouldn't be surprising that given their backgrounds, just looking at it from the outside, the first person who's not a Christian is going to look like they have things together more than the second person who is a Christian. Does that make sense? Does, does you follow me? Just by the, the nature of how they've been raised and that sort of thing. Or, or to put it this way, we always say the church is a hospital for sinners. Like we love to say that, right? All right, well, what's the logical conclusion of that statement then? Who are, who's in hospitals? Sick people, right? Sick people. And so you ought to expect the church to be filled with sick people, with, with people who are wrestling with their own sin. Um, so when you see a non-Christian who is better behaved than a Christian, that in itself isn't necessarily an argument against Christianity. Because obvious, often it's the people who, who realize that they're actually sick who, who actually go to the hospital. It's the people whose disease is evident to them that they actually go to the hospital. It's, it's often people who are, quote, lower on the character scale who realize, I may actually need a savior here. I'm kind of in trouble. Uh, and it's hard for people who are healthy on the outside to realize that anything's wrong with them. But like you don't go to the doctor for a long time. I'm fine. Well, actually, there's something wrong inside. It's hard for those who their life is just well put together and seem to do good things for them to see that they actually need Jesus. Now, let me throw one other thing out here um, that factors into all this. Sometimes people who claim to be Christians just aren't Christians. Right? Just, just saying you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. There is going to be some change in your life, no matter how poorly you, you know, started off. Jesus says, by your fruit, you will know them. And so there is going to be some visible evidence of Christianity in our lives. And so when you see somebody claiming to be a Christian who's not living like a Christian, and you confront them and call them to repentance, which, which has to happen with all of us, but when you confront them and there's no repentance... And there's no remorse, and there's no real like desire to change anything. Then you can legitimately begin to ask the question, like, "Well, I don't, I don't know if that person's actually converted or not. I mean, they just may be a professor who 
professing believer who is not actually a believer. Um, and that's especially a danger in a Christian culture like the South, where we all just, if the Census Bureau comes by and says what religion you are, everybody in Spartanburg almost is checking Christians. It's kind of a cultural thing. So that's a danger you have to be aware of here. Um, so all of that is a long-winded discussion about what the Bible says about human behavior in general and Christian behavior in particular. And I, we're going to have to go through that to start looking at this objection. Now, secondly, well, how does God feel about injustice and hypocrisy? Well, there's a lot of texts we could be looking at this morning, um, but we picked Isaiah 58, and the short answer is he's not happy about it. Uh, in Isaiah 58, the people of God are worshiping, they are fasting, and they're saying, hey, God, we're worshiping you. Hey, God, we're, we're, we're not even eating here. We're doing religious things. We're showing up week after week for worship. Why aren't you answering our prayers? Why aren't you responding to us? And the answer here is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. First part, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? And why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And then this is what God says. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. And then skip down to verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not... To share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Matthew 25, Jesus uses even stronger language to say, look, if you, if you don't care about the sick and the poor and the hungry and the needy, then no matter what you profess, no matter how religious you say you are, you're actually headed for eternal judgment. This, this is a big deal to God. So, so, yeah, Christians are inconsistent. We are inconsistent. We are hypocrites at times. We stumble badly. It may even be that we're, some of us are not actually even Christians. And so we're inconsistent. But the Bible isn't. And God isn't. The Bible is, is uniform in its testimony that God delights in those who care for the poor and the downtrodden. And he is much displeased with those who oppress the poor and the refugee and who turn a blind eye to injustice. And it's consistent in that. Now, the reality is, kind of an aside here, when, when people criticize Christianity for the injustices that the church has committed... They're actually using categories that they get from Christianity, right? They're actually using categories that they get from the Bible. Because if there is no God, if we just all evolved from the mud, then, well, all right, what is injustice? Like, define injustice for me. And who cares if I oppress the poor? Isn't that just survival of the fittest? Like, let's call some people out. 
Shouldn't I, I, I round up the people who are lower on the food chain, who are using up all of our resources so that the rest of us could survive and thrive and our, our race could be better? Uh, aren't refugees showing up just a good opportunity to do that? Hey, these are easy pickings, right? I mean, that's logical uh, in an in a, in a atheistic, we just by chance are here worldview. And so, yes, Christians, we are, let's admit, we are inconsistent at times. But the very standard you have to use to criticize Christians, you've got to pull that from the Bible. You've got, to, you've got to use the Bible to even have grounds to criticize Christians. So even if Christians are inconsistent, the God we serve and, and the Bible we listen to are not inconsistent. The God of the Bible sets himself against those who would oppress other human beings. So, what do we do then? This is point number three, if you're following. Uh, what do we do then with injustices committed by Christians? How do we correct them? Right? When we see these, how do we correct them? Do we say, hey, you Christians need to be less Christian and more secular? Um, Tim Keller in Reason for God notes that when Martin Luther King confronted southern white churches, he didn't call the churches to become more secular. Right? That's, that's not what he did. He argued on the basis of God's law. He argued on the basis of what the Bible actually taught. He didn't say, well, truth is relative. Everybody should just do what they feel like is right to them because then there would be no reason for those churches to repent or to change or to do anything. Instead, he quotes from books like Amos and says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness is a mighty stream. And so what Martin Luther King Jr. understood was that the antidote to racism was not less Christianity. It was a truer and a deeper Christianity. And that's what he called the churches to. Now, fourthly, um, how, all right, so, so given all that, how then do I as a Christian make Christianity more attractive and not less attractive? How do I deepen my own Christianity? How do I, how do I avoid being a hypocrite? How do I guard myself against committing Injustices, And I, I think it's important here because I, th- I think it's very easy in this type of discussion to go to, well, what are the politicians doing or what is our nation doing? And those are legitimate discussions, but kind of miss focusing the light on ourselves for a minute and say, all right, I, 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 I'm not here to blame shift. Like, what is my responsibility in all this? So well, let me give you some suggestions. Number one, um, take the text we read, Isaiah 58, and go back through and read that later today maybe and just do some self-examination and ask yourselves questions like, well, why am I into religion? Like, why do I go to church? Why do I pray? Why do I fast? Am I just trying to, to get something from God? Am I just trying to get Him to bless my life? Or, or, or you know, do I just want some morals and some fire insurance? Or do I actually want to know Him? Now look at the text and ask yourself questions like, well, okay, how, how do I treat the poor? How do I treat the oppressed? What's my attitude toward the needy, toward the refugee, toward the unborn, toward people of lower socioeconomic classes, uh, toward the fatherless, towards the orphan? Um, and thirdly, 
But look at the promises of God in this text. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. In verse 10, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. You know, a lot of times we look at the needs around us and we're, we're like hesitant and, and I would even say afraid to get involved in some of these things, in some of these places and with, with some people because, because it looks so draining. And we're, you know, what about my needs? And, and what about my family? We need to, to care for ourselves, right? And, and, and that's true to extent. But God says, as you pour yourself out serving others, I will refresh you. Uh, Bill Leslie was a pastor in Chicago, and, and, and he said, kind of in inner city Chicago, and he said that it was these verses that really rescued him from a time of exhaustion and, and burnout and just feeling like he was at a dead end in, in ministry. Uh, one author said this about Pastor Leslie. He said, What struck Pastor Leslie so powerfully was the fact that if we pour ourselves out for others, God promises to make us like a watered garden. That is, we will receive the water we need for refreshment and joy. But even more, we will thus be a spring of water that does not fail for others, for the demanding, exhausting, draining ministry of urban self-giving. He saw that God's way of lifting gloom and turning it into light was to pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. This gave him a pattern of divine life that got him through his crisis and kept him going for the rest of his days. God has made us to flourish by being spent for others. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Most of us do not choose against this life of outpouring. We drift away from it. We confuse pressured family life and stresses at work with Christian sacrifice, when in fact much of it has little to do with meeting the needs of the hungry and the afflicted and the perishing. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have cancer or if you're depressed or the magic cure is to give stuff to poor people and then God is magically going to cure you. But we are scared, aren't we? Like, like we're afraid. To, to give ourselves and to give our time and to give our money away. And yet God promises to provide for us and to restore us and to refresh us when we do just that. Uh, fourthly, I just have a couple more here. Check out this Sabbath thing. Like there's this long text here and we're like, okay, this all fits together to me. And then... He starts talking about the Sabbath. Why, why is that here? And we're not exactly sure. But maybe it's because we tend to think that true refreshment comes from money and success and pursuing recreation and pleasure. And so we, we hold on to our money and, and we don't give it to the poor. And then we never rest because we're busy chasing success and we're busy chasing recreation. And we show up for worship on Sunday like we're supposed to, but then we, you know, the rest of the day we go right back to chasing all those things we've spent all week chasing. 
what if God had given us this day so that we could use it to seek rest and refreshment in Him? And maybe if we did that, if we actually were using the day to seek refreshment in Him, we wouldn't be so busy trying to find refreshment in our possessions and our work and our busyness and our activities. And maybe then we'd be able to let those things go. Because we know that those aren't the things that refresh us ultimately. And then we'd be in a position to actually give and to help others. Think about the Sabbath. Uh, Fifthly, look at the example of other believers. Uh, One of the times when we were having car trouble on our trip was in Ganado, Arizona, I think. I never could remember what state I was in that night, but that's that's another story. Uh, Two of the people who helped us that night, uh, one of them was a guy named Nathan, who was the son of a pastor to the Hopi Indians. And he had basically grown up on the Indian reservation. Uh, And and he, um, I don't know how many hours he stayed with us. He stayed with us two or three hours. He helped us jump the car off. Then he he led us down the road, in the, like we were trying to keep the battery from dying again. So he led us down the road. We had our lights off, and we followed him down the road, down this two-lane road in, in Arizona in the desert for five miles back to a hospital. And then he stayed with us there until we finally figured out whether they were going to let us camp on their grounds or not. And, you know, he had this little ragged car. He had a spotlight on the, on the uh, side view mirror so that he could see animals that might jump out in front of him in the desert uh, but but he stayed with us and helped us just for hours the other guy who helped us was a navajo indian named jones white and he stopped while we were there on the side of the road and he and nathan are trying to figure out what's wrong with our car and um jones eventually offers to let us stay at a cabin that night that we found out later belonged to the mennonite church that he was a member of on the navajo reservation and um we said, now we, we've driven 26 hours straight. We're just going to camp right here tonight. But thank you. So Jones comes back, though, the next morning, brings me a battery from his car, from one of his cars, puts it in my van to get it started again, and then leads me down the road to make sure our car doesn't break down again to the nearest Napa, which is 30 minutes away in, in Window Rock, uh, and stays with us while we discern, yes, yeah, just the battery, not the alternator. And we get a new battery. So he was there the night before. He came back again the next day. And, and his wife at one point said, we were thanking them. She's like, well, he had only been a member of the Mennonite church for two years. And, and they said, well, this is just what you're supposed to do if you're Christians, right? Like, this is just this is what we're supposed to do. And what struck me was how they were the hands and feet of Christ to us. But also what struck me was that, like, if we were, like, standing and just looking at this from afar... Those would be the people that the world would think of as the least of these, materialistic. They didn't have a lot. They were living on Indian reservations. They were living in places where we would go on a missions trip and then come back home to our our comfort. And yet they were the ones demonstrating the love of Christ to us. And so often it's it's seeing other people and, and even receiving love yourself that enables you then to go and to love other people, which brings us to our very last thing. We don't just look at other people. We finally look to Jesus. Uh, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Uh, At the center of our religion that, that we profess is a man who willingly became poor and oppressed for us. He willingly did that for us. Does our Christianity reflect the Christ that we claim to follow? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we acknowledge that at times we are not the best testimony to the truthfulness of Christianity and that, that our, uh, the injustices we commit in our own hypocrisy is a, is a barrier to people. And so, Father, I pray that you would change us, that you would change us uh, as we see the example of other believers who, who seem to get it. Uh, that you would change us as we spend time on the Sabbath resting from all of our busyness and and being refreshed in you. Uh, And that you would change us ultimately uh, as we look to Jesus, uh, who became poor willingly for us. As we see that, uh, help us to pour ourselves out and to become poor for others. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.